Ian, we're going to be covering PFI on this week's podcast. I just wanted to know, what does PFI actually stand for, please? It's a technical financial term. It stands for pretty f***ing inefficient. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we will be talking about PFI, the Private Finance Initiative, and talking to Tom and Nev, two of the Eye's joke writers, about exactly where they get their ideas from and about whether all the Eye's joke writers really are overgrown public schoolboys. I know I am. But first, PFI a somewhat dry-sounding government scheme for raising money, which nonetheless has been back in the news in the last few weeks, and especially in Private Eye, after a number of schools in Edinburgh and, in fact, the rest of Scotland at large have started falling down. Here is eye writer Jane McKenzie on exactly what is going on. The schools that were built under their uh, PFI schools deal, the walls weren't actually attached to the schools. <laughs> but they, they can't just have had freestanding walls. What they'd done when they built it was they left out the wall ties, which attached the external wall cladding to the building. There was a very bad weather and um, one of them has detached. And when they've looked, it's not the only school where that's the situation. Wow. I mean, to be fair, they couldn't have budgeted for bad weather in Scotland. You would never expect it. It's a black swan event. So obviously the number is changing all the time, but r- do you know roughly how many of this has affected so far? Well, they've had to close 17 while they check which schools the problem exists in, because um, obviously it's a hidden issue. Once you've finished the building, you can't see wall ties. So they've had to check because obviously any school built onto the deal could have the same problem. This isn't the first issue with schools construction we've written about. Uh, For instance, in uh, 2007, in Exeter, they had five schools built under a PFI scheme. I believe the legal action was certainly still going on in 2013 over the the buildings. They had problems. The windows didn't work properly. The heating and ventilation didn't work properly. The water systems were so bad that the water was toxic. They had numerous problems with the buildings. The contractors were blaming the designers, that's not the only one either. There's been lots of instances. If you're trying to build a lot of schools and make a profit, then there's a temptation to look for ways to do it without spending all the money that you're being given to build the school on building the school, because that's how you make a profit. Before we get into too many more concrete examples, how exactly does PFI work? Here is another of the Eyes writers, Solomon Hughes. There's two elements to it. Uh, one is that, of course, you don't borrow money, they borrow money. That's the whole point. It's the private finance initiative. So what happens is you, the government just says, give me a hospital for 25 years and you come up with the money and the buildings and the running of it, but we'll pay you back over time. Uh, in the early schemes, often they what Gordon Brown and Tony Blair wanted a new hospital, so they would sell off the old one, which would be made into flats or whatever, and the money would be used to give to the consortium. So it's a bit like selling your house in order to rent one. So you get a flashy new house, you know, you sell your house, uh, which is a bit old and shabby, and you get a flashy new house straight away because you put down a bit of money and it's, it's someone else has created it, you didn't have to worry about it, it seems like a good idea. But of course, in the long term, renting is more expensive because in this structure, the private finance banks borrowing money is always more expensive than public finance, governments borrowing money because governments are a 
they can borrow at a lower rate of interest. So it's very expensive in the long term, but it looks like fa- fancy money up, up front. The second element is you become a tenant. This was the public authority's school or hospital or whatever it is, or a war plane that's been done by PFI as well. And all of a sudden, it's one that you're just renting. So you become a tenant. You lose uh, control of how things are done, and you think they're cheaper, but you, it turns out that they can be a kind of either cheap and shoddy or more expensive. So that, that's the structure. So how exactly did we end up here? Private Eye writer Richard Brooks followed the pioneering work of the late great investigative reporter Paul Foote in writing about early PFI deals. The official history of the Private Finance Initiative has it that uh, it was the brainchild of a former Tory MP called David Willits, who back in 1993 was uh, an advisor. He wasn't yet an MP, but he wrote uh, a pamphlet called The Opportunities for Private Funding in the NHS. Uh, But back in 2008, a reader got in touch with us with a copy of uh, a work an academic had done on how Benito Mussolini had funded um, infrastructure back in the early 30s when there was a... Uh, an even bigger recession going on, um, you might remember, Andy, <laughs> written by an American academic called John Flynn, which uh, was called 12 Years of Fascist Finance. Um, so we're actually looking at the private fascist initiative. <laughs> and in there it said that um, Mussolini resorted to a subterfuge to pay contractors without increasing his budget. He would make a contract with a private firm to build certain roads or buildings. He would pay no money but sign an agreement to pay for the work on a yearly instalment plan. It's beginning to sound very familiar. No money was paid out by the government and hence nothing showed up in the budget. And this was exactly the point of the private finance initiative 60 years later. The Tories did a few schemes and they came to fruition just about at the early part of the Labour government and they, were, they showed how awful they were. They were really expensive. There were hospitals with less beds. The, re- the building standards were often poor. Sometimes instead of refurbishing a hospital, it's more financially advantageous to them to build a whole new hospital which might be out of town. There was all kinds of things wrong with it and the Brown and Blairs, Brown in particular, I think, looked at that and thought, great, we'll have some of that. It was exactly the same argument when it came to schools. Here's Jane again. It was really needed that there would be a massive school building programme. In the late 90s, schools around the country still had outside toilets. They were really crumbling Victorian buildings that didn't work as schools and weren't necessarily safe buildings to be in. And the government looked to PFI as a way to get this done while kind of pushing the cost of it off into the future and putting it on to people in 25 years' time rather than spending all the money up front. Presumably building schools for the future was covered in the eye at the time. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Is this a good way to fund your massive building programme? Um, what's the oversight for it? Are the companies that are doing it a bunch of shysters? And several of them did turn out to be and went bust. But before we look at any more PFI disasters, uh, let's pause and just consider how bad the actual setup of PFI is. Uh, As Solomon explained with the renting analogy, the effect of a PFI deal is that you contract a consortium to build your school, or whatever it might be now, and the taxpayer then pays uh, through the nose for the next several decades. But who are these consortia? Solomon Hughes. 
a consortia would be let's say there's a bank called money squeeze international there's a builder called budget company and a service firm called servitude plc now they are the consortium who will finance the hospital build the hospital and then run the building run the catering and cleaning and what have you Uh, but they would form a consortium and they would be called health advance or future health or something like that and so obviously in order to report that properly first you have to say well this hospital is being built by the future health consortium which is made up of uh, money squeeze international budget and servitude plc the real story is budget money squeeze and servitude but because you have to talk about words like consortium and name three firms and all the rest of it a lot of the press wouldn't really get into that so not only was there a lack of media attention being thrown on pfi but there was also a political consensus that it was a good thing both the conservatives and the labor party thought that it was a very convenient way of getting something for nothing And due to a combination of those factors, a lot of companies mentioned regularly in the eye grew enormously from the labour years of PFI. It changed the structure of British industry. That's the truth of it. Big companies, which really were brought into being by uh, PFI, uh, Interserve, a major uh, privatisation contractor that runs all kinds of things, really it's a large part of its basis is a company called Building and Property Group, which grew up to uh, run hospitals, and they were often the hospitals where plumbing wasn't right, where wages weren't good. The, the companies that really are big on the stock exchange would brought into being by PFI, so they're brought into being by public money, but they act as private profit-making enterprises. So as a result of that, some companies have made a huge amount of money, some of them very easily. For instance, in Liverpool, 10 years in to a PFI contract, there's one of the schools that they closed because they didn't have enough pupils. They still have to pay every year for this school. Literally the only thing it can be used for really at the moment is filming scenes that might want to be set in a school. (laughs) So they they do occasionally use it to film things, but they're paying every year to keep up, beautifully, a massive secondary school that has no pupils in it. To break the contract would cost them £25 I think, and... That's too expensive. They can't sort of rustle up that money to to get out of the contract. So they've got 14 more years to go paying for a school they're not using. The terrible thing is that if they could rustle up that money, presumably it would save money over the lifetime of the contract. It would. But they're stuck making much smaller payments, which total total more than £25 million. Ultimately. It's worth looking at why successive Conservative and Labour governments have both been able to justify PFI to the public, especially given that they have a duty to spend taxpayers' money as efficiently as possible. Now, various governments have said that PFI is actually the most efficient means of spending money, and here is how they justify it. Government rules say you can't, come on, you can't just go around wasting taxpayers' money like that by signing these contracts that are way too expensive. They have to be value for money. So whenever a PFI contract is set up, there has to be a calculation that shows that funding that hospital or school or prison or whatever it is through the private finance initiative is cheaper or better value for money than funding it through taxation or borrowing. You know, you might be wondering, based on what we've just discussed, how on earth can that be? Yeah. Well, the answer is that you fiddle the calculations. The way you do it is to say that the future payments, remember we said that these 
these very high annual payments stretch into the future. You say that you will discount those by a certain amount, quite a large amount, which currently stands at 3.5% per year. And if you want to get into the maths, you do that by compounding. So a, a payment 20 years hence is discounted by 3.5% compounded over 20 years. I know, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. No, but no, no, no. no. <laughs> we're I, getting into I, I think I'm getting it. <laughs> right. So is, th- is that to take into account the fact that money gradually loses its value over time? Well, that's, with- that's ignoring inflation. You also so exclude that, inflation. So you also exclude inflation. Yeah, so yeah, that's not yeah. to take this that is, into This is taking into account a concept, an economic concept called time preference of money. The, the idea is that uh, we would rather spend or we would rather have money now than later because we're going to do some terribly productive stuff with it uh, and the world's going to be a much better place. So let's defer all our costs into the future. Now, the, you know, it's a, it's a moot point at the rate at which you should then discount. And most economists think that the 3.5% that's currently used is too high because it way outstrips standard levels of economic growth which probably a better kind of indication but it suits the pfi calculation because it it means that the private companies get their interest and their profits but it doesn't look like they are when you sign the contract now according to richard there are various other fiddle factors at work too so for example companies are compensated for the supposed risks that they're going to be bearing the government factors in tax that will be collected from private companies as a result of these deals being signed now the reason that that's a fiddle factor is that in reality a lot of these contracts then will be sold to for example an offshore firm meaning that there's no revenue for the treasury in spite of their calculation The final thing that he suggests might be skewing the figures is that there is an optimism bias in the way these contracts are written in the first place. Now, the point of that is that publicly funded contracts tend to work out more expensive. Now, the evidence doesn't really back it up, but the calculations used still work on the assumption that uh, publicly funded contracts, cost overruns and stuff like that, are greater in those than they are in privately funded contracts. So you can adjust the value for money calculation by this other factor. So all these fiddles go into the calculation and you find that magically the (laughs) private finance initiative contract appears a bit cheaper. Yeah. It often looks extremely suspicious because usually the the PFI deal comes in less than 1% cheaper after those adjustments than the public sector alternative. People did eventually start to realise that these contracts were a very bad thing and uh, they were especially criticised by, for example, the shadow chancellor George Osborne, uh, particularly before the 2008 financial crisis. However, once the coalition had got into power in 2010, they realised that maybe these weren't such a bad idea after all. He needed exactly the same result as Gordon Brown did. And Mussolini, let's not and forget Mussolini, Mussolini. yes. <laughs> Sorry, don't, don't forget Il Ducci. It appealed to him as much as it had to those great leaders. But he just said that the whole thing was discredited. And he, he did the only answer when you're in that kind of position is to have a review. As a result of which we now have PF2. Yeah. Which is what? PF2 is PFI. <laughs> but part of the review... Uh, involved asking people what shall we call it now you know they put out a suggestion box and pf2 private finance mark 2 was the the name they came up with plus a few little a bit of tinkering around the edges but it's essentially the same method 
and we've looked at uh, a number of deals signed under this new method. And while until now we've only really been talking about your, your classic PFI deals, if you like, things like schools and hospitals, they have gradually been mushrooming until they have covered almost every aspect of government service. Everybody concentrates on schools and hospitals, that sort of trips off the tongue. But the biggest sector is defence, and the biggest PFI deal ever was a £14 billion deal for refuelling aircraft. One of the more more bizarre ones that we dealt with for a long time is the uh, future strategic tanker. Now, that's uh, it's a key warplane in the RAF, is these refuelling jets. Uh, one jet refuels another up in the sky, great big planes that have a, like a pipe comes out and pours whatever fighter petrol whatever they're using those things into the other one they're really important because they allow uh, our jets to fly further away and and have war with people far away and the original pfi deal the the idea was was that people would lease the raf these jets and fly them for them when they needed in war but in order that they weren't wasted when they weren't in war they would then fly the same jets because they're essentially civil airliners with a great, great big petrol tank in them they would take the petrol tank out and fly them to take people on holiday so that was the plan it's called the future strategic tanker and it was a pfi deal now it took ages to sign it was really 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 expensive much more expensive in the end than it would have been just to buy the jets and own them Uh, but obviously one of the problems was the idea that these you could make a bit of extra money on the side by using them as taking people on their holidays when we weren't at war slightly fell down because we never stopped being at war Uh, but it also had other consequences Uh, we were kept pointing out that future strategic tanker was expensive and bad and a crazy idea but uh, eventually the um, national audit office looked at it and they found that it was very expensive because among other things the requirement the contract did not envisage the aircraft flying into high threat environments such as afghanistan so the warplanes they designed weren't designed for war because they, they hadn't got the contract right and the people selling it hadn't thought to say to the ministry of defense or the raf or whatever are you sure you know don't you want them a bit more like warry these warplanes so it's an absolute catastrophe And this is possibly the most perplexing aspect of PFI or PF2 or whatever it's going to be called next. It is who is actually writing these contracts on the government's behalf. The government is not an expert in negotiating these contracts, so it hands its job over to the big consultants and accountancy firms. They have an interest in cranking up the money machine as much as possible. The company itself is advised by the same firms. For years, ever since Private Finance Initiative has been the way of procuring uh, investment, the private finance people in government, in the Treasury, have been from the industry itself. So you've had accountants from places like Deloitte, uh, bankers from HSBC, running the private finance unit within the Treasury and advising the Treasury that, yeah, you know, this is this is a good way to fund public services. So this kind of revolving door just goes on and on and on, and it, and it, it entrenches the system in government. Actually, some contracts have been renegotiated, but it's very expensive. Uh, there was a hospital in uh, Hexham in, in the northeast that recently cashed out of its PFI policy, but it had to pay a fortune. The PFI company got a windfall, and the trust saved money because... The contract itself originally had been so expensive, but it, and it, it was no different from any other PFI contract in that respect. What should really happen, I mean, the, the radical thing to do would be to follow that model for all PFI contracts. 
to buy out all pay, all PFI contracts, there'd be an immediate financial hit, but there would be a saving, a long-term saving. Is that the basic problem here, is that it's short-term versus long-term thinking? And by the time this contract yeah. finishes, you'll, yeah, you yeah. won't have been in government for 20 years. That's right, yeah. And if you look at what's happening now, what George Osborne is doing with his uh, national infrastructure plan that he published uh, last month, reading into that, the, the clear implication is that PFI or PF2 as he would call it is going to be very prominent he's relying on that to fund the infrastructure he's promising without hitting his financial projections so if he can say well we are going to invest in public infrastructure but it will be done through private finance uh, then his forecasters or the office of budget responsibility can say oh yeah you're just about or we think there's a chance you'll just about hit that target Uh, So, again, it's more sleight of hand, and it imposes extra costs down the line. Now, we don't like to end on a sad note here at page 94, so despite all these dodgy deals, it is good to know that our government have at least made the best use of one of those refuelling planes that Solomon mentioned earlier. So it flew back into our site recently because there's a recent announcement that Cameron was going to get his own plane, Cam Force One, a £10 million plane. And everyone was like, oh, that's him just being spoiled, which of course is true. But what they didn't quite grasp, I don't think, is that actually it's one of these planes, one of these planes... Because they can't find a way of having the refuelling planes take people on holiday that easily because of the unpredictability of war. You know, that spoiled that deal. They're using one of the planes as as, uh, Cam Force One. So in a way, Cam Force One is actually just subsidising this terrible PFI deal. Solomon Hughes. Next up, we have the opposition. Among a lot of the regular gag features in Private Eye, writing duo Nev Fountain and Tom Jamieson have written sections of the joke pages dedicated to whoever the opposition has been for many years now, from cartoon strips of Ed Miliband's Mr. Millibean, Andy Burnham's Andy Cap in Ring, and now the column Jeremy Corbyn Writes. Not only that, but they are responsible for one of the eye's most controversial columnists, The Angry Baby. When I spoke to them, I started off by asking them how they came up with ideas for these new regular features in the first place. It's very difficult to actually structure innovation in Private Eye. Most things have come about by accident. The adventures of Mr. Millibean started because there was an amusing picture joke that Ian liked, which just had him as, as, as Rowan Atkinson, and he said, I'd like a comic strip out of that. The Angry Baby evolved from another picture joke. So most things we get in tend to evolve by accident or we just have something that we enjoy writing and he goes yes i'd like another one of those so we've we moved on to the adventures of mr millibean and then we've moved on to andy crap when andy burnan was for that <laughs> tiny tiny moment like british summertime was going to become party leader and uh, for the corbyn we've kind of well, we tried some strip ideas but uh, he was just too ridiculous to be condensed into strip form so um we decided to keep it simple and we always discuss everything with Ian and he always guides us and uh, it, when we come up with something we're all happy with and I think for, for Corbyn it was just basically just point out what he says really and point out his attitude How did you guys meet? How did you guys start writing together? We met on weekending we didn't work together on weekending I think I thought Tom looked weird and Tom thought I looked arrogant But for the BBC and its open door policy we, we would probably never be comedy writers now so that's another reason for john whittingdale to yeah. <laughs> to get rid of it 
You guys write for a, a number of different places. So you write for um, Dead Ringers, for example, and you've, you've worked on a whole raft of shows, basically. Is there a different satirical style to fit every one of these places? And if so, what do you feel about the eyes style in particular? We kind of differ on that. You think a joke is a joke is a joke. I think there are different styles and different parts of the brain to use. The satire is very important with the eye. There has to be a satirical edge. With Ringers, you can just do a silly voice with no context sometimes. I think uh, the eye always has to stem from something, an angle. And even though most of Dead Ringers has satirical angles, it can just be nothing but a voice. I don't know. I think there's a real, real freedom in the eye because it's, it, it, it is what it is, that you can, you can push things quite far. And because it's so loved, you can be incredibly hard and, and that you could never be on the BBC. I think you, we, we get stuff in as long as, you know, Ian can see that we've made a good point and that people were attacking the people who need to be attacking you can be extremely hard so i find the eye very liberating writing for the eye because you can you could not be that scathing or that cutting elsewhere we're very anti-regulation in terms of our jokes well, that makes us very right-wing in that sense <laughs> we we see the see dead ringers as the eu because we have lots of rules the bbc has lots of rules about what you can and can't say and, and even if an angle we think is hilarious and is hard they might go well people might not get that well so what i think uh, ian really places the emphasis on the reader to stick with the program and, and get with us rather than we pander to them and that's probably reasons why it's so popular and reason why people love cancelling their subscriptions or faking cancelling their subscriptions because basically that we don't we don't pander we don't pander to anyone and as long as the joke is right and it's fair and there's a, there's a point to it then do it so we better tackle one thorny issue head on as joke writers for private eye are you products of either Eton or Harrow or one of the other great public schools. You can tell from my cut glass <laughs> English accent that I most certainly am, yes. Yes, a, a poorly educated Australian traveller who just happened to wander into the eye looking for bar work one day and everything went horribly wrong and here I am 18 years later. He comes from a long line of uh, disreputable Australians who work for the eye over the years. No, we're, we're complete scum, we really are. <laughs> uh, my, my, my father was a lumberjack and my mother worked in the post office and I never went to anything that was paid in my life. <laughs> Nev's formative years were spent in a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> Does that trope kind of annoy you then? Because it's one of the things that, that sort of Private Eye gets a fair bit of, I think. No, I think it's all part of the mythology. The mythology of Private Eyes is wonderful, and I think that that's an important part of Private Eye. I think it's terrific. Uh, the um, Piers Morgan quote is one of the mo most favourite quotes of, of all time about being... Bitter, drunken, angry ex-public schoolboys, which is the the private eye employees. I think it's wonderful that you want to print the legend. Definitely, don't yeah. don't listen to us. Print the legend. Nothing, nothing actually annoys us. We feed on their rage. Yeah, we, we actually love it. <laughs> we we scour pedants' corner, hoping that someone is getting angry about a mistake we've made. It's great, and and the more angry the people get, the more we enjoy it. I I think that's being in a satirical magazine. We just love fury directed at us. Thanks to Tom and Nev there. Uh, that is it for this week's Page 94. Thanks also to Jane, Richard and Solomon. And if you would like even more of this sort of thing, then issue 1418 of Private Eye is on sale now, featuring Donald Trump's diary, a letter from Max Mosley, and a very funny lookalike of Philip Green. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>